Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Animation Fascination Podcast. I'm Mark Vivert, and with me again, as always, is Matt Quest. Hello! And today, we have a very special guest, uh, Hal Hickel, the Animation Director for Industrial Light and Magic. Hello! Uh, and if you guys haven't listened to the podcast before, uh, we focus on the world of animation. Each episode, we feature an animated series or a film from the past or present. Whether it's traditionally hand-drawn, computer-generated, or stop-motion, if it's animated, it's up for discussion. All right, so from there, we're going to get into our new releases for the week. Uh, the only new release this week is a DVD release of Ah, Real Monsters, Season 3. Ah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I bet you, you watched the show, right? Because, I mean, yeah, it was that, one of the Nicktoons that was on. That, that I remember I, very well. <laughs> like, there is uh, Ickes, Crumb, and... Uh, was her name? Something Berlina? What was it like? Umbrellina or something like that? Slickus, Horvac, Mama Grumble, Subbelina? No, no, it's yeah. Ablina. Yeah, Umbrellina. I knew it was like Lena, something like that. And she's shaped like a black and white cane. And then Igus is the, the red rabbit looking thing. And then Crumb is the hairy armpitted guy holding his eyeballs yeah. up. But yeah, they got season three of that. And that's the last season of that show uh i was i don't think i'd ever watched this far into the show before because there's like some interesting things going on in that last season but it's definitely if you watched the show when it was on it's worth adding to the collection because it's another cheap dvd that amazon is putting out and doesn't have any special features on it which would be kind of nice if some of like these old nicktoons dvds did have some things on there talking about like the making of the show or whatnot but for the most part, these are basically like made-to-order DVDs, so most of the time they don't even have them made until you're like, oh, I want to buy that, and then they make it for you. So this comes out officially on September 11th, so if you want to check it out, go ahead and buy it then. But from that, we're going to get into our news for the week, and with that, as the first look of the... We talked about this a few episodes ago, the Batman the Dark Knight Returns animated film that's coming out, and did you watch Lost, Matt? I watched a couple seasons of Lost, but I never really got into it that much. Well, do you remember uh, Benjamin Linus, or however far you got, Henry Gale? Maybe. All right, well, <laughs> Michael, the, the actor Michael Emerson, who played that character on Lost, is going to be doing the voice of the Joker. Oh really? In, yeah, in the this in the Dark Knight Returns Part Two, which is pretty awesome because it's it's kind of cool to see him go from that like villainous character on Lost to now being the Joker. So I'm pretty excited about that. Now I'm I'm almost just want to skip over uh, Part One of this and watch Part Two to see him in and there is the Joker. Uh, so yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. And the Part One comes out at the end of this month on Blu-ray. So. Check, check that out when it comes out. And then the next thing is the first look for Emma Stone and the cast of DreamWorks Animation's The Crudes. Have you checked that out at all? It looks pretty cool. The Crudes. I've, I've heard of that. I think you've showed it to me before. Yeah, Nicolas um, Cage is playing her overprotective dad in it. Uh, Catherine Keener, <laughs> Keener is the mom. Catherine Keener uh, was a 40-year-old virgin. She was the the object of Steve Carell's affection in that. And then Clark Duke from Hot Top Time Machine, the the young guy from that. He's her brother in the, the movie. And the movie looks like a pretty... Oh, and then Ryan Reynolds does the voice of kind of a somewhat evolved character called Guy that Emma Stone's character uh, becomes smitten with. And it looks pretty cool. The designs for it look awesome. And then, like, the art for, like, the backgrounds and whatnot are cool, too. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at a piece of the artwork right now. It, it reminds me... It's like a cross between like the Flintstones, like CG with like Finding Nemo, like background corals. Right. And like, the, yeah, like, like, I guess the beginning of the movie basically starts almost where, like where the continental drift happens. So this is what was happening to humans during Ice Age 4. <laughs> but the better part of it, probably. Uh, but yeah, like their, their cave breaks apart. So they go out and look for a new cave and that's, when they go on this this first road trip and all the stuff that kind of happens them along the way, so I'm excited to see DreamWorks do like another film, another original film, not and like not another sequel. Because usually when they do do their original films, their original films are pretty good. Like we see that uh, 
Rise of the Guardians coming out later this year. That looks that looks great, and that's an original film from them. So, looking forward to the Crudes next year. Uh, and then from that, kind of going with Hal Hickleby on the show today is the Clone Wars returns for its fifth season this fall, and the, the trailer was released for it, and it looks awesome. Darth Maul is actually back for the season. I don't know if you've watched the show at all, Matt, have you? I've only documented the style and rendering, so I haven't watched the show. All right. That was my smart answer of, I, <laughs> no, I have not watched it. Well, I, I, I watched the first three seasons, and then I kind of got behind on the fourth season. So I'm interested <clears throat> to kind of see how, how they bring Darth Maul back into it, because everybody remembers that saw Phantom Menace that Obi-Wan Kenobi cut him in half, and then he fell down a pretty pretty uh, far pit. Because, like, you know, these pits... Uh, kind of fill the Star Wars universe that you can throw people down in it. You know, I'm looking at a concept art photo right now of Darth Maul that's out on the internet, so I'm not spoiling anything, and it looks like he he's like half robotic from the like, waist down. Like bionic legs, kind of? Bionic, like bionic everything. Yeah, so the, the guy that's actually doing the voice for Darth Maul is Sam Witwer, who did the voice of the Secret Apprentice of Darth Vader in the Force Unleashed video game, which is kind of cool. I, was, I almost kind of assumed that they were going to have Ray Park, who played Darth Maul in Episode 1, come back to do the voice, but I guess since they only really talked for maybe like two lines and that, I guess they didn't feel like they really needed to match the continuity with that since they don't have Ewan McGregor doing the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi or Hayden Christensen did the voice of Anakin on the show either. But So I'm, I'm excited for that. I might have to catch up and watch Season 4 because... The, the reviews from the show, basically, not to put the prequels down at all, because I, I like episode two and three a lot, but that this show, with each progressing season, gets better and better than the prequel films that were put out, and possibly up to of how awesome the original trilogy was as well. So I guess if you haven't checked this out yet, definitely go back and watch Star Wars Clone Wars. And this is the the CG animated one, not the, the micro-series that... Jenny Tarkovsky did back, uh, I, I screwed up his last name too, uh, did way back uh, between episode 2 and 3, so definitely check it out. And then the, the last bit of news is that you can now pre-order the Frankenweenie Unleashed soundtrack, and this is kind of in the lines with that Nightmare Revisited CD that they put out, and then the, the Alice in Wonderland CD that they did, where it has all these bands covering songs that were made famous by original films or inspired by it. So it's going to be like a bunch of bands like American Rejects and like Jack White doing music inspired by Frank and Winnie. So you can pre-order that now on iTunes and that'd definitely be... I mean, I'm assuming if you like the music from Nightmare Revisited and the, the Alice one, you'd, you'll like this one too. So definitely check that out. And with that, for the week, there wasn't any new trailers, so we're going to get right into the recommendations. And then my recommendation is from a website called How It Should Have Ended, which I hope everybody knows about the site. This site's awesome. They've been doing these animated shorts for the past four or five years or so. I actually got to meet one of the guys that has basically started off the site, Daniel Baxter, a few years ago at Comic-Con. And this one was for the film The Dark Knight Rises, and it was pretty funny. Basically what they do usually in these shorts is they kind of pick on little flaws or things that like maybe you had a question about in the film, and then they kind of extrapolate that on that and make make fun of it. And it was pretty funny. There's that, and then there's a Bane short that they did, that bonus scene that they did with that, that's pretty funny to go off that too. So definitely check that out. And they have a bunch of stuff on there, like Titanic, how it should have ended, they have one for The Dark Knight, how it should have ended. Uh, they have a bunch of stuff on there, so uh, go check that out. Their site's awesome. Maybe, hopefully, eventually we can get some of the guys from that that site on, because their shorts on those are awesome. And so, uh, I think my favorite one still is the, the Spider-Man 3 one that they did, because they did, they basically almost completely redid the entire film, because they, they hated it so much. And they did a, a nice song on that that's, that's really funny, too. So definitely check that out. Nice. My recommendation for the week is going to be the third and the seventh. And uh, this is a CG film that uh, I I saw it back in college. Like um, it was it was two years ago, 
And uh, this is like, it's a CG animated uh, short film. And uh, the, um, the person who made this is Alex Roman. And uh, he describes it as a full CG animated piece that tries to illustrate architecture across a photographic point of view where main subjects are already built spaces, sometimes in an abstract way, sometimes surreal. It's basically a really, really cool um, piece of just, you know, venturing through these CG environments that he made, which look absolutely photographic. Yeah, when you sent this to me, I had to, I had to ask you, if, I was like, is this animated or <laughs> or is this like shot live action stuff? But yeah, I mean, this is how good it is. the CG that I try to achieve every day. This is like inspired my senior thesis. This inspires the CG that I do today, you know? Um, but uh, definitely check it out. And the, the music that uh, was composed for this piece was actually done by Alex Romain again. And he, you know, sequenced and orchestrated it and mixed it, you know, based on a couple of original scores. And it's just, I'd say it's really beautiful, the music within this and with the, uh, the environment. It's just one of, I come back to it a lot and watch it just for inspiration. And uh, it's really, it's a really great piece. And I recommend, you know, everyone that hasn't seen it to go see it and it'll blow your mind. Yeah. And like always, you can, you can find all our recommendations right in our show notes on our site. Cause I'll post the links there for you guys. <clears throat> uh, and then with that, we're going to get to Hal Hickel's recommendation. Yeah. I saw a short film called paths of hate from uh, Platija Maj that I think maybe was nominated for, um, the Oscar for short film last year. I might be wrong about that, but that was terrific. And then a f another film that was nominated for sure, uh, Morning Stroll by Studio AKA. I like that a lot. Um, there's another short film called Luminaris by, uh, um, I think the guy's from Argentina that made it. And uh, it was kind of a, um, what we used to call pixelation, um, where it was like, you know, real humans, but animated sort of stop motion style. Um, that was really charming. I like that film a lot. There was, uh, there was actually quite a lot of really good stuff um, there last year. Oh, Chico and Rita um, was an animated feature that was nominated for the, for the, uh, in the feature category last year at the Oscars. Um, oh yeah, I saw a trailer for that. It looked pretty good. Yeah. And it's, it's nice. really nice. Um, it has a really nice graphic um, sort of, um, not comic book style, but like graphic novel kind of uh, style to it. And um, and it's a very ad adult film, but not adult in the way that um, people generally mean when they're talking about animation, which is to say um, lots of violence and, and maybe sex. Um, there's a little bit of sex in it, but that's <laughs> pretty gentle. Um, but really what makes it adult is that it's just an adult story. It's a, it's a love story about a, um, a jazz musician in, in Cuba and uh, the singer that he that he falls in love with and their paths keep diverging and recrossing as they both travel to America. And over the years, they they just, you know, it's they just never quite connect. Um, but it's a it's really terrific film. Really beautiful. Cool. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Just to go back there for a second, the paths of hate. I did see that one as well. And that was really cool. That 2D, 3D look was great. Um, I actually showed that to my students last semester, and they really love that. Yeah, it's it's really dynamic, um, great camera work, really interesting rendering style, and um, super dynamic. You know, I just I, I I think it's a really terrific. You know, great message as well. But um, yep. it's really really great, terrific film. It, it reminded me a little bit of um, some stuff from the first heavy metal movie. I, I guess there's <laughs> one so far, but um, there was some stuff in there with a. a World War II plane and, and stuff that something about it kind of reminding me of that particularly at the end where they're really all um, kind of gruesome looking and crawling towards each other in the snow and but yeah, uh, yeah really cool stuff really cool mm -hmm. I guess without further ado we'll get into the initial interview then <laughs> all right <laughs> uh, pun intended I guess what initially drew you into animation <laughs> um well and and in fact in my case it wasn't actually drawing I um uh, like a lot of people I know who work, uh, particularly in the visual effects end of, of um, animation, uh, you know, I watched a lot of science fiction and horror movies as a kid on TV. Um, and, you know, this was in the 70s when um, there wasn't an internet around and, and uh, you couldn't even run out and rent movies um, 
to speak of uh, yet. And so you'd, you'd, I'd get the paper every Sunday and it would have a listing of all the movies that were going to be shown that week on the you know three network channels or the one local channel. And um, I'd go through it and circle all the, you know, Godzilla, King Kong, Mighty Joe Young, you know, whatever was in there. And I'd make sure I'd watch them all. But um, so then I, King Kong especially kind of caught my attention, the original. Um, so I started to find books about how the film was made. And that got me interested in stop motion animation. And then I had a, I got very lucky that a librarian at my grade school um, brought someone in to teach a two week class in animation. And I was just lucky to be in that group of kids that was in that class. And that kind of cemented the deal. And then um, Star Wars came out just the next year, I think. And that kind of broadened my interest from stop motion to sort of all forms of visual effects. Um, so then, and then uh, after high school, I went to the California Institute of the Arts for a bit, um, moved back up to Portland and worked as a clay animator at Wilburton Studios uh, for about six and a half years, um, then did a year and a half at Pixar as an animator and then came to ILM in the middle of 96. So that was kind of my path in a big nutshell. <laughs> cool. Very cool. So out of all those studios uh, you've worked at, um, you know, in multiple movies, uh, what, what is your uh, favorite sequence that you've uh, animated, like, all time? Favorite thing I've... So, all right, as an animation supervisor and animation director here at ILM, um, these days I don't get to animate myself all that much. Generally, I, I get to animate toward the beginning of a project when we're doing tests and we're sort of figuring things out. And But once we're in shot production, I'm, I'm too busy to be able to put the time in. So just to be super pedantic about it or, you know, um, in terms of like something I personally animated, something I, I still really like a lot was a, a handful of shots way back on the second um, Lost World, which was my first project at ILM as an animator. Um, and it was um, a handful of shots where Laura Dern falls off this roof onto the ground and these two raptors are fighting over her. And and so I animated those shots and um, I'm still, you know, pretty reason as happy as you can be with something that's that, that old and, you know, you've had that much time to look at, but I, I'm pretty happy with those. Um, and uh, curiously in, in, in uh, episode one, Star Wars episode one, there's actually some stuff in there that that I still uh, really enjoy watching that with um, Boss Nass, who's sort of the big fat king of the Goongoons. Oh, yeah. um, and I didn't animate any Jar Jar shots. I'm just going to put that out there right now. <laughs> one single Jar Jar shot. But I did a bunch of shots. I was the lead animator on Nass, and, and he was really fun. He had these big fleshy jowls, and so he was a lot of fun to animate. Um, and I did some work on the 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 destroyer droids the ones that sort of roll up into a ball or a wheel and roll along and, and unfold and um so i was always pretty happy with the way those turned out um so that's as an animator as a supervisor i think the stuff i'm happiest with has to have been in um the pirates of the caribbean film particularly the second film and then rango i think those two things were have been kind of the highlight for me so far um yeah Nice. Oh, cool. Well, good segue into our uh, next question then. Um, in the animation, Rango, which is my favorite animated film of all time, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yep. Um, so I, I actually, when I heard we were going to interview you, I went through all the books I had um, just referenced in my own house. And I have the Industrial Light and Magic Art of Innovation and huh? the... The, the Ballad of Rango, I have the art book too, so I went over those and I was reading through them. And uh, in one of them, it, uh, you talk about how uh, it was challenging to animate in Rango with all acting rather than animating to action. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was, a, it was something the animators here were hungry for. But it was definitely a change of pace because, you know, we're, we're typically working on visual effects projects where, you know, you might have some acting. Um, you might have a Yoda or a Thimbletack in the Spider-Man Chronicles or, you know, characters like that that actually have dialogue and they have, you know, real acting to do. But quite a lot of what we do is action. You know, we're, we're doing mm -hmm. Transformers or we're doing, um, you know, stuff like that where it's it's sort of, you know, dinosaurs, things things that are driven by sort of action and, and, and that have to tie in with... Um, 
a bunch of stuff that was in the actual footage, like, okay, the, the car flips over here, so you've got to, you know, have the dinosaur's foot come down right on this frame in the spot to knock the car over. And so it's driven by a lot of things that are, they're not really directly about acting. Um, and then, or, or, or you might have a show like the Pirates films where we're partnering with an actor like Bill Nighy to create Davy Jones, but where the acting choices have been made by Bill and we're sort of, you know, partnering with him to use a term that um, for whatever crazy reason, some people took issue with um, last year when um, uh, uh, Andy um, Circus called the work on uh, Gollum digital or uh, no on the um, Caesar, the ape in, in Planet of the Apes. He called it digital makeup. <laughs> and a bunch of bunch of people got thought he was being dismissive or reductive about it. But to be honest, I mean, he's he's not far off. And in fact, you, know, you look at somebody like Rick Baker, who's one of the most brilliant makeup people ever, and maybe the most brilliant ever. And he's he's been getting very interested in digital work uh, over the last few years. He's he's become quite a master at using ZBrush and, and creating um, CG characters in ZBrush. And I think if you called his work let's say he designed a makeup that ended up being actually created digitally. If you said to him, Oh, that's digital makeup. I don't think he'd be offended by that. So yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't be offended to use that term for what we did with Davy Jones. I mean, it's very mm -hmm. extensive. We, we did Davy Jones from head to toe. It wasn't just Bill's face, but anyways, to get back to my point, the acting choices in that, in those cases were, were made by Bill. So when we get to a project like Rango, you know, it's more of an empty, slate um the the yes there are storyboards and there's a layout that comes before the animators get started so they kind of know what the deal is with their shot or the series of shots they're doing and of course gore our director would you know kind of give them a turnover and say hey you know rango's just come from here and this is where he's going next so think about this in context and he's feeling this and blah 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 but gore would always be pretty broad with the animators um you know he wasn't one to give them super fine detailed notes at the turnover. He kind of want them to get into it. So, um, you know, within that framework though, there was just so much more room to move. You weren't tied into a live action plate. You weren't um, building on top of an actor's choices. It was all up to the animators to um, study the, the reference. You know, we'd filmed the actors, of course, doing their voices and, and mm -hmm. we got them together in this way that, that is, has been done on some animated films, but isn't done very often where you, you bring the, the the actors in together and have them all act together on ensemble and then give them props and costumes and things. And we did all that, but none of that was um, a blueprint for the animators for the performance. It was just stuff to soak up for vibe and to make the sound have a more kind of live sound, the, the, you know, the voice tracks. Um, but also you know, the animators could troll through that and just look for great, oh, you know, that's a great hand gesture. Oh, I love what he does with his face in this take. And, um, but none of it was like a, a blueprint or a roadmap for the animators. So again, it gave the animators just this great chance to just do acting day in and day out and comedy, you know, um, and, and they just, you know, they really loved it, but, but it was, a it, it was, you know, everybody was, uh, stretching new muscles as they say, and, <laughs> um, you know, moved out of their comfort zone a little bit. So it was, you know, it was awesome. It was awesome. That's Very cool. cool. Yeah, I, like I actually, I found uh, like a documentary, something that was, or like a special, I guess, because it was only like half an hour, and I had pointed out to you that it was on Netflix Instant that kind of shows like some of this the process of of them acting it out, and then it's the animators yeah. going through and kind of using it as a reference. So definitely, if anyone hasn't seen that, that's definitely something to check out. It was pretty cool to watch that. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet. I understand I'm in it, but I haven't. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, and you know, it was it was cool. And that whole process of um, of doing the dialogue that way, I, I talked to some people as the movie was coming out, and of course, you know that a lot of the PR featured that footage because it was a great way to show off the actors, right? You got Johnny Depp in your animated movie. You know, the PR folks understandably want to show John face you know get people excited about the movie so it was perfect for that but I, I i read some things just you know like some comments online and stuff from from some folks who were um kind of old hands in animation you know established animation folks who were kind of like oh sure you know the live action director comes in and you know is gonna change you know show us how to do our animated movies or something i don't know it was like this weird attitude and um, and it was funny to me because the whole reason that Gore did it that way, it wasn't he had no desire to like 
um, show everybody how animated movies should be made. He just, he just was a live action director. And, and when somebody said to him, well, you know, you're going to want to bring in your actors all separately because, you know, you'll get the dialogue clean and it gives you, makes it easier to edit. And it's also easier to schedule their appearances and stuff. He was like, well, that's, I, no, I can't work like that. That's crazy. You know, I, I can't, I don't make live action movies like that. So why, why would I do that here? I want to, you know, we'll rent a stage and we'll get some costumes and everybody can have fun and we'll, you know, we'll get that magic going that I'm used to getting on set. So it, it totally just had to do with his sort of comfort level and, and working in a way that he was used to, but it, you know, it wasn't like, Hey, we're going to forge an entirely new way to make animated movies. <laughs> and, you know, and as I said, in the end, it went, you know, to be honest, when we started it, we didn't know how, um, we didn't know what it was going to give us. Like, you know, we thought, well, Hey, maybe we'll have a, like a whole cut of the movie that's just made from this, this, um, footage. And, um, in the end, that wasn't the case at all. There were, there were one or two scenes where Gore had, um, had really wanted to figure out some of the blocking and lensing during the voice recording. And that was another thing that was really good for it. It, it gave us a nice live sound. Um, but he, Gore could also sort of figure out blocking. He could say, well, let's see, how many steps is it from the swinging doors to the bar? So when Rango walks across here, how long should that take? And where should the gambler's table be and all that stuff? Because those are things you can figure out later in layout, but it's much slower and more iterative where you're, you know, moving stuff around in CG and rendering out shots and cutting them together and showing the director. And here he could just do it on set really fast. Like he's, again, like he's used to doing in live action with a director's finder and he could just sort of figure things out. So in a, in a few scenes, like for instance, Rango's first um, appearance in the saloon, that was a case where he did go through and shoot almost every angle that was in the storyboards and then cut it together just like the scene had been in the storyboards. Um, but most of the rest of the time, he just sort of covered what the actors were doing with several cameras. You know, some of them were handheld and some of them were maybe on a dolly or something. And then we just had a sort of a reel of footage that was sort of a best of reel for each sequence. So every time a sequence would go into animation, Gore would sit down with us with this sort of best of reel and kind of, and there'd be like, you know, there might be two takes of, of one performance and three takes of another and one take of, an, of another performance. And he just kind of go, you know, I'm not necessarily in love with any of these, but I kind of like that hand gesture there. That's sort of funny. And, you know, maybe see if you can, you know, Johnny's got a great vibe here. There's a funny thing he does with his eyes. That's, that's kind of cool. And, you know, see if we could, there's a way to transpose that onto Rango. It was really sort of loose like that. And so in the end, it ended up being kind of valuable, but in a whole range of ways from just making the audio better to in a, tiny minority of of shots actually providing us with really sort of spot on reference but and there were a couple of those there was a there's a shot of beans in the um tied up in the bank vault at the end of the movie and the water's rising and rango's being an idiot and they cut the beans and she's rolling her eyes and then we and isla just did it so perfectly that that was one of the very rare occasions where gore said just do that just that simple <laughs> simple thing she's the way she's tilting her head and the way she's rolling her eyes it's just you know, you're never going to improve on that. Just, just rip it. Um, but generally, that 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 almost never happened. Uh, Stephen Root was also a great provider of. Um, he did the voice of Doc and uh, a couple other characters, the banker, and he that guy was just gold. Like he did so many funny things with his face, and um, uh, he just he was awesome. Yeah. I don't know what we were talking about. Sorry, no. <laughs> I was just kind of completely went off the rails, and I don't know where I'm at. That's okay. I, I got a follow-up question to that. So it sounds like the animators had a lot of, like, uh, they were very free to do um, a lot of things. Um, did you see any of, like, the animators, like, personality come through in their animation um, while animating any shots? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's good in some ways, and in other ways you have to watch it, you know, because you do need <laughs> consistency and you need the characters to feel like the characters and not feel really crazy different from one shot to another. But yeah, yeah, I mean, and and there's, you know, personality that comes through. I mean, when I was a clay animator at Will Vinton Studios, that's where it really came through. Because unlike, um, for instance, Paranorman or Coraline, where the, um, they're using face replacement with these, you know, perfectly sculpted faces that are always on model, with clay animation, you're, you're you know, it's all malleable. It's like Wallace and Gromit, you know, you're, you're re-sculpting the features every frame. And... Um, and so like we were doing, you know, these California raisins and you'd get, 
you'd get one shot and it would and you know because the animators all had little mirrors on set with them so as they're re, you know doing the lip sync frame by frame they're looking in the mirror and sort of making these expressions and stuff and you get these shots back and you're like oh that's tom's shot look it looks just <laughs> like tom and then you know you get another oh that's that's sheila's shot look it's you know it looks exactly like Sheila. so you really had to watch it with cg um as with the um you know the sort of the replacement stop motion you know it's it's harder to make stuff go off model but there can be more subtle sort of personality things that that can creep into it and uh, and you know part of that is is casting shots like you know you might have one animator who's the great sort of spastic funny guy you know he's really good with shots where the character has to be totally spazzing out and going in seven different directions at once and then you've got somebody else who's really good with the quiet introspective serious heartfelt moment and then somebody else who's just awesome with action um you know so you're always sort of casting shots that way and that 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 ties into sort of what they bring to the shot and, and, and you know how it ends up appearing so very cool nice okay so i read a little bit about um the rango production and i heard it was like uh you know extreme or like uh the workload was just um overwhelming and there was something um called sequence-based lighting that was uh, uh, developed during the production? Yeah, I mean, and I think um, other studios that do digital features for a living, like Pixar and PDI or uh, DreamWorks, probably have systems like, they have had systems like this for a while. Um, it's something that isn't as, is sometimes useful in visual effects, but isn't always useful. And so that's one reason why it just hasn't been part mm -hmm. of our arsenal. But what sequence-based lighting is, is, so let's say you've got a whole scene that takes place, uh, like the shootout scene at, at high noon. And, you know, all those shots take place out there on the street at high noon. Um, what sequence-based lighting allows you to do is once all those shots are animated and then they're handed off to the lighting team, they create basically create one lighting setup for that scene and propagate okay. it to, to all the shots. And then if they're like, you know, we'd like the fill to just be a little higher across all the shots, then you just tweak it once and it propagates to all the shots. But then you can still go into each individual shot and say, okay, we need to add a little beauty light to the eyes in this shot, you know, in this close up and all the things you do in live action where, you know, the, the, the DP and, and, and the gaffer were going and they'd light a scene for, you know, the general sort of lighting for the scene. But in each new angle, each new setup, you're going to have tweaks and bring in a bounce card and do this and do that. Um, but the reason why we didn't have a system like that before where you could sort of tweak the lighting across a whole bunch of shots that all sort of share the same lighting is because, you know, usually we're putting our stuff into live action plates and live action plates are the lighting's all over the place. You know, you think of, of movies as generally having kind of nice continuity and stuff, but you know you could have an action scene that was shot over a whole afternoon, and so the the first or a whole day, you know, and so mm -hmm. some shots were morning sun, some other shots are you know shot late in the afternoon, and the shadows are long and blah blah blah. And our goal is to make the creature looks like it fit in the look, you know, the creature whatever it is or environments whatever it is we're putting in there, to make it look like it matches the lighting in the existing plate. And so you could never have sort of one lighting setup across dozens of shots um, because they're all every shot so unique that said um more and more we're getting big effect sequences that are almost completely cg you know where the the smaller and smaller percentage is is, is actual real film so in those cases it becomes really valuable um but so sequence-based lighting was just one of a few things that we looked at going into rango because um as i said i mean we've had i mean one of the advantages ilm had in being a visual effects studio making its first animated feature is that if nothing else we're used to very large scale projects you know we're used to shows with 2000 effect shots you know um that you know that's the, the upper end but you know we've done that and we we know how to manage shows that are that large but even still an animated feature um in terms of all the stuff you have to make mm -hmm. was you know in order to magnitude more complex for us because generally even on a really big um, visual effects show with, you know, say more than 1500 shots, still a lot of those shots are going to be, you know, maybe simple things of painting out rigs or painting out wires or that kind of thing. Um, plus most of the shots, again, are going to be based around something you really photographed and you're kind of putting some things into the shot. Whereas on an animated feature, obviously 
everything in the frame has to be created by you. Every pebble, cactus, blade of grass, wagon wheel, coffee table, you know, um, uh, shot glass, horseshoe, everything, you know, and, and again, folks at Pixar would be like, well, of course, yeah, that's what we do, you know, but for <laughs> us, it was like, okay, we're going to need to kind of ramp up, um, you know, secret space lighting was one thing. Another thing was just a bit more robust method of keeping track of all the assets, scheduling all the assets, um, set dressing was something we'd really never had to tackle before where, you know, you kind of finish a scene, let's say out on the main street of, of dirt and it looks a bit barren and sterile until you dress in all the little pebbles and weeds growing around the corners of the buildings and a broken wagon wheel here and a barrel there and stuff. And that, that was our set dressing department. And we never had a set dressing department before that film. So that, you know, there were a bunch of things like that, that we had to kind of um, bootstrap up quickly, you know, for the production and, and figure out. And, you know, partly we were helped by hiring some folks from uh, um, other studios who had done that work before. Um, like uh, Nick Walker, who was one of our layout supervisors, had had done supervised layout at DreamWorks for quite a long time and worked on a bunch of the, the films down at PDI. So we had folks like that to come in and um, help sort of bring their their knowledge on in those areas to to what we do. Um, but, you know, in a lot of ways, while we had to learn a lot of new things, we also had the advantage of sort of not knowing what we're doing. So we didn't because <laughs> because, you know, and they think the audio thing is, is a good example. Um, you know, I think if if we were all old hands at animation, we we would have just assumed right from the beginning. Oh, no, no, we've got to have all the actors in there separately and we've got to do that. And because we were like not following any rules or, or didn't have any preconceived notions, um, we just sort of skipped over that and moved ahead, you know, and just sort of like, yeah. no, we don't, we're going to do it this way. Um, so it was, you know, it was a mix, you know, that, that whole, that, that kind of not knowing what you need to know thing is, is a curse and a blessing ball for you. You, <laughs> you sort of forge ahead with ideas uh, without anyone to tell you that they're dumb. And, and in some places that works out and other places, you know, it bites you, but like we had, you know, we've got a bunch of, of, um, of friends over at Pixar, of course, because they, they actually started out as part of us. And, and um, so we had, they were very gracious and they sent some of their folks over to give us um, some talks for the artists here as we were ramping up Rango. We had somebody come over from layout and somebody from lighting and um, Andrew Stanton came and gave a talk and we had, a, um, I mean, Dylan Brown came and gave a talk about animation. It was really brilliant. And, and one of the things I think it was Dylan was talking about um, and he, he was talking about Ratatouille and the development of Ratatouille. And he, and he said, you know, that they reached a point on the film where they just realized they had, as they were developing the film, that they just had too many characters. You know, it was, it was confusing for the audience. And so they pared it down to this kind of core group and it was sort of a lesson for them. And, and we, I remember walking out of that talk being, you know, really inspired and thinking, ah, oh, it's great. And, you know, his words are ringing in my ear and I go back to the production offices for Rango and we've got this wall with about 60 characters on it. <laughs> and I knew that that wasn't going to change. So I just thought, you know, some things are rules and some things are guidelines. And, you know, that's, that's just the way it is. And so, um, and we just, we needed all those characters for our film because while they didn't all have uh, speaking parts and all that, we, you know, we knew that Gore wanted his Western town to be as sort of rich and weird looking as the ones you'd see in the um, Sergio Leone films where Sergio Leone was great at casting these really, uh, you know, interesting faces in his movies like Klaus Kinski or Lee Van Cleef. And, um, and, he, and just that went, that goes right down to the background characters too. And so Gore really wanted that in this film. He didn't want a bunch of cloned characters and sort of filling up the crowd scenes. He wanted, if you looked around the crowd, he wanted you to see, you know, you know, the prairie dog lady and the weird frog kid and the, you know what I mean? The whole like, <laughs> weird panoply of, of bizarre characters, um, you know, that, that sort of richness. And so we just had to suck it up and do it. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah. So again, I've trailed off, but <laughs> uh, I guess kind of going off of that, you, you kind of answered it, uh, but what were like the challenges would you say of working on more of like a fully animated feature like Rango as compared to like inserting CG characters or elements into films like Pirates of the Caribbean or Star Wars? Like, I, which one do you think, after doing both, which one do you think you prefer? I like them both. Um, <laughs> it's funny because I, I, um, 
you know, I, I was a clay animator at, at Vinton's and then I really got lucky and I got hired at Pixar right in the last six months or so of uh, Toy Story. And they had mo actually most of the movie left to animate at that time. Um, so I, I, that was my first experience as a, working on an animated feature actually was, was on Toy Story. But I had always really wanted to do the Ray Harryhausen thing more than, than the Walt Disney thing, I guess you'd say. And so, um, you know, it was a tough decision, but I, I decided to uh, jump over to ILM because I really wanted to do visual effects stuff. And so um, that's been great for me and I, and I really loved it. But and if you'd asked me maybe five years before we started Rango, hey, do you want to do an animated feature? I still would have been like, no, I'm you know, I'd like doing live action movies and doing visual effects. But Gore came in with with Rango at just the right time. It popped up and you know, plus our relationship with Gore, we did we know him really well and I, I was excited to do anything that he was working on. But it also just for me personally, it was perfect timing. I was like, you know, this would be great. I'm ready to do something different. And um and we all loved it so much that as I was finishing it, I started asking myself that question. You know, I just thought, you know, is it do I want to do this from now on? Is this all I want to do from now on? And um quickly before I could really even think about it much, I, I ended up doing a little stint on Super 8 kind of late in the project, supervising some of the uh, creature animation on Super 8 last summer and um, or summer before last whenever that was. And, uh, and I thought, no, I like both things. I still like this and I like the other thing. So if a really great animated feature came in the door, um, I'd be happy as a clam to work on it. But right now I'm up to my neck in, um, Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim, and I I could not be happier. It's it's giant monsters and giant robots, and you know I just I'm a, I'm super happy. So, um, so I I guess I continue to love love both of them, um, yeah. And they're not, and I can't, you know, there isn't one that's easier. You know, like some people will be like, well, visual effects, you know, we have this high standard of realism and blah blah blah. It's like, well, yeah, but. Um, but you also have this framework that sort of instructs you on where things need to go and how they need to look. And particularly with things like lighting and all that, you have, the, the, again, the live action framework to sort of tell you what things should look like. Not that it's easy to, to make them look the same. To, you know, integration is, is really tough. But, um, but you just weigh that against sort of the, the more open slate, you know, the, the freedom that in a digital feature. And I think they kind of come out even in terms of the amount of, you know, the level of difficulty or if you will, or the, or artistry or however you want to look at it. I think they both, um, they come out pretty even. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Um, so going back to like, I think you mentioned, uh, Harry Hausen as, uh, something that you like doing. Is there any, like anything that like really it's, uh, inspires you like any, anybody else's work that, uh, you, you get inspiration from? Oh, all over the place. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Paranorman recently. I really enjoyed, I really enjoy still watching um, stop motion animation, even though I don't, I don't do it myself anymore. I think it would kill me. <laughs> uh, you know, Coraline was beautiful and Paranorman yeah. was beautiful and funny. And um, so that, that continues to really inspire me. And, and like I say, I went to the, um, the big animation festival in Annecy, France, uh, not this summer, but the previous summer. Um, and that was just hugely inspiring. I'd been wanting to go to that for, um, for years and years. And finally I had the opportunity to go and do a little talk about Rango. And, um, and that was just, uh, really inspiring, not just because of all the work, the great work that you see, but just the level of enthusiasm for animation. Um, you know, it's a lot of young people, but, you know, people from all parts of the animation industry and, you know, you go to these screenings and it's a really big theater and they're throwing paper airplanes around and they're bouncing <laughs> beach balls, you know, before the movie starts, they're bouncing wow. beach balls around and this music's playing. And then as soon as the, 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 the trailer for the, for the um, festival itself hits the screen, it's just like cheer, massive cheering. And then the films start. And, um, you know, I just, I, to be honest, working in visual effects, I'd been a little bit out of that whole world, the world of sort of, animation festivals and short animated films and all that um, for a while. And, and it was really inspiring to get back um, in, into that. But, you know, and even just in the, just the regular world of visual effects that I'm normally working in, I mean, I see stuff all the time that, you know, I'm just, you know, amazed by, um, 
both both here at ILM because you know frankly we're always working on you know 10 projects or something at once you know some crazy mm -hmm. amount of projects yeah. at once and so I've always got just somebody next door working on something that that I'm not involved with that I can look at and be amazed at but just uh you know in general in, in the industry um I'm you know I'm really looking forward to the hobbit like everybody else on the planet um I'm really excited about that prometheus had just insanely gorgeous visual effects in it um uh, you know, there's just there's always something coming out that's making me want to get back in here and and do more stuff. And and frankly, this project I'm on is is awesome because we um, we've never uh, done a project for Guillermo before. So um, he's he's every bit as awesome to work for as you might think he would be. And so that's been um, uh, invigorating for everyone here. You know, to to have like a new sort of boss who's who's really awesome that that, that gets you fired up. Um, so that's that's been cool as well. Awesome, totally awesome. All right, so my next question is uh, kind of um, going off of like what I do. Um, you know, I I do work in the animation industry. I work over at Fisher Price, and we work on projects. And sometimes, you know, we're under like deadlines and stuff. And do you ever sure. uh, you ever run into like the circumstances where you know you have like a deadline and then something goes out and you wish you could just go back and like work on it a little bit more? Oh yeah, I think every every piece of animation you, um, particularly if it's your own, like you're actually doing it yourself. Yeah, like you're never really done. They just sort of take it away from you. Um, but and I think even as a supervisor, you know, I mean, it's easier for me to be happy with shots because I'm not animating them myself, and I can I'd be satisfied. But you know, there's always stuff in a movie that you get done, and you're like, oh boy, I wish we could <laughs> circled back and yeah. fixed that up yep. or, or repaired this. And yeah, it happens. It happens all the time. And, you know, our our post-production schedules seem to just be shrinking all the time, even though the shows themselves seem to be getting bigger. So it's it's yeah. it's more and more of a problem. Yeah. But absolutely. No, without question. Uh, kind of going off that, um, basically, how has the process been for you, like, different for, like, the different forms of animation that you've worked on, like, from the stop motion to uh, CG animation to like the CG compositing to the films. How's yeah. that been different for you over the years? Well, I, I started out before I even did clay animation. I was, um, I worked on at a shop that had a, an Oxberry, which is a, a type of down shooter, right? So it's a camera on a set of rails, but pointing down at a tabletop that's lit from below. And you put our artwork down. It's the way they used to shoot character animation, but also the kind of work we were doing, the artwork was, was lit from behind and you would do multiple exposures of, all this kind of lighted artwork. And, um, and I was really into that. But right when I started to do, to do that around 1983, after I left CalArts, um, was right about the time that kind of work started to be taken over by the computer. Um, they started to use computers to do that kind of thing. So it sort of chased me along. And I worked on at that place for a few years. But then I had a buddy at Vintage who was like, hey, you know, you used to do stop motion when you were a kid. You should come over here having a lot of fun. We're doing these raising commercial, California raising commercial. So I got hired there and that, that actually steered me back toward character animation more because I was, you know, animating clay characters there. Um, but I still really wanted to do, like I said, the, the Ray Harryhausen thing. And so I always had my eye on ILM and I had my eye on Phil Tippett and I was watching these projects develop. And if not that, then maybe um, go to work at uh, what was then Skellington Studios in San Francisco as they were ramping up to do um, Nightmare Before Christmas. I thought, you know, that's not the Harryhausen thing, but it's still stop motion and it's it's kind of in, in the world I'm in. And then Jurassic Park came out. And, you know, up yeah. to that point, um, particularly those of us who were really outside of the CG community, which I assume was much smaller then, and, and you know, the, the, most of us who were just out in the sort of film community and particularly being up in Portland at Vinton's and, and not really in touch at all with ILM or, or any of these places that were doing higher end CG work. Um, it was a shock because we'd seen the trailers and we sort of thought we could tell what was Stan Winston and what might be computer generated. And we thought, well, well they're probably just doing those deep background dinosaurs with the computer. And, you know, and then you saw it and it was like, Oh my God, you know, and, um, and so th that really had me worried because I thought that, once again, this sort of thing that I wanted to do was being taken over by by computer animation, and I didn't know anything about computer animation. Um, 
at, at one thing I did at Vinton's though that turned out to be useful was I was um, in addition to animating characters I was also a motion control operator and I figured out later that motion control operating was a lot like animating in the computer in the sense that you sort of pose the ca camera rig and set keyframes on all the axes all the, the parts of the camera rig and then you'd move it like move it down the track and tilt up the camera and boom it up the tower and stuff and you'd set keyframes and then you would adjust the lines between those keyframes and that's basically how you animate a character in cg so but at the time i didn't think that there was any connection between what i was doing there and, and computer animation and i figured that the people that were doing computer animation like the folks at ilm who'd done the work on Jurassic Park were rocket scientists. You know, they all had computer <laughs> computer science degrees, and they were walking yeah. around in lab coats or something. I mean, I did I didn't know, and um, and I thought, well, I'm going to be stuck doing mud puppets for the rest of my life, you know, <laughs> unless I want to go back to school or something. And then, um, like I said, I did get lucky uh, that uh, there was a guy at Pixar at the time, um, uh, Mike Belzer, who had been an animator at Colossal Pictures, stop motion animator, and he they Pixar really needed more bodies to get in there to help him finish toy story and he sent out some feelers to people in the stop motion community that he knew and so somebody at vinton's mentioned me hey you know i don't know if you know mike but they're looking for animators and i had already been making noise ever since jurassic park came out i'd been telling anybody who'd listened there that boy i really like to you know figure out how this computer animation works and get my hands on it but vinton's was was not really getting into it yet at that point and um so, well, you know, give Mike, so Mike, I called Mike and he said, yeah, they don't, you don't have to know how to use software. Their software is very friendly and they'll, you just have to know how to animate a character. So send a reel down. And so I, I did. So it was just super lucky timing. Um, but what all this is getting to is that what I discovered once I got there um, is that my brain kind of liked the way I you know, animate in CG. Um, I still love stop motion. Like I said, I love watching it. But in terms of actually doing it, that thing of, of having to um, sort of set everything on the puppet completely on each frame and then move to the next frame and the next frame and the next frame versus in CG where you can kind of plan the action and layer it and work on the parts that are broken but preserve the parts that aren't broken um, just works from with my brain better. Um, the danger with CG, of course, is that because you can work over it and work over it and work over it, it can get very stale and canned and sm over smooth and you know, you lose the sense of spontaneity and discovery that you have with stop motion. Um, so that's the trade. That's the hard part about it. Um, it doesn't have the, it's not as physically demanding as stop motion. And it doesn't take that really specialized weird mindset that the very best stop motion animators have where they can just focus on a single performance for 12 hours, <laughs> you know, where they see it in their head and they're just moving through it. Um, that takes a very particular mindset, and it doesn't have those things. But, you know, as I said, it has other challenges in terms of keeping it fresh and making it look spontaneous. Um, but anyways, it, it just worked for, better for my brain, and I, I really don't think I could go back to stop motion now. Um, as much as I may romanticize it in my brain, <laughs> I had a the day, the day I was before I was um, I packed up my car and I was, was going to move down to the Bay Area from Portland the very next day to start my job at Pixar, and I had a dream that night because I was pretty stressed out about it. And um, I had a dream that it was my first day there and they were very nice and they, oh, please come in. And it took me to this room where um, there was a t just a table and the walls were lined with these wire racks full of computer parts. Like here's the CRT and here's the motherboards and here's wiring harnesses and here's the power supply. And, and they're like, okay, assemble your computer and we're going to be back in a few <laughs> minutes and we'll get you started. And I was like, oh, no, I don't, this is a misunderstanding. I don't know how to, and the door shuts and, you know, I'm just sitting in there sweating. I'm serious. I had this dream and I, uh, you know, I mean, it couldn't be, you know, sometimes you have dreams. You're like, what was that about? No, this dream was couldn't have been more clear <laughs> but but it you know it turned out mike was right though they're they're um and even at ilm at the time i mean they were using softimage or, or whatever softimage might have been called back then or maybe it was called softimage now it's called xsi but um and and you know i just what i didn't understand was that there was already sort of this idea that the software at least for character animation should be made friendly to the artist and that you know, you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to, to bring characters to life. There were plenty of rocket scientists hard at work making those tools and all the other tools, particularly back then when, when things were so new, new for all the studios. But um, to actually be an animator, you didn't, you didn't have to be.
Very cool. Awesome. So, so that that was just lucky for me. Cool. (laughs) I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) So, besides uh, the work that you do over at uh, ILM right now, are there any like uh, personal projects or creative things that you do in your uh, free time? Oh God, no! I haven't. I don't have time. Um, I have an 11 year old son. And, um, so that's, um, you know, he, he, and he and my wife, um, they take up pretty much all my time when I'm outside of here, because, you know, that's, that's really what I want to be doing with my time when I'm outside of here. But, you know, I do think from time to time, oh, it'd be great to, you know, do a short film or, you know, um, I, you know, do start doing some artwork or something. And yeah. I just really, when I get home, all I really want to do is have a glass of wine and, you know, relax a little bit because um, particularly when we're in the middle of a, of a project like this, but, you know, maybe when this one's over with, it'll be time to take that, you know, six months sabbatical and make a short film. <laughs> <or something. laughs> yeah. uh, kind of going off that, uh, besides, Guillermo uh, del film. Can you talk about anything else you're working on next, or do you guys have plans to do a, a second fully animated film at all? We um, we would love to do another animated feature. We don't have one in the works yet. Um, ILM itself is not going to get into the business of developing its own IP because um, Lucasfilm has. Right. Uh, Lucas Arts, or sorry, not Lucas Arts, Lucas Animation for doing that. So they do, you know, the Clone Wars TV series, and they're working on their own animated feature right now. So for us to do another animated feature, it would it would need to be a similar deal to what we did on Rango, where a director comes in and says, "Hey, I have this project, and I want you guys to do it." Um, and if the right project comes in, we we would love to do it because Rango was a good experience for the studio on every level. It was a good. Experience experience for the artists it was a good experience financially everything it all, all worked out so we'd, we'd love to but we're not working on anything yet um and then and we just have our usual slate of of um, projects we're working on the next star trek film and um uh, you know pacific rim and uh, a bunch of other stuff some stuff i can't even talk about super secret um and then as for me i have no idea what i'm going to do next um this won't wrap up for me until probably march i think and then um i don't know what i'm going to do yeah so, but that's okay. I like that. I like that's one of the the worst is when the projects overlap. Actually, oh, yeah. it's it's better to, to to sort of not know and have a little bit of lull between. You know, that's the perfect thing. Just have a little bit of break between it. Awesome. Matt, did you have anything else you wanted to ask, sir? Um, just that it's been an honor to have you on here. We got a really good insight onto you know the studios and how things work. And Rango, just hearing about that was great. Yeah. Awesome. No, was, thanks. I had a I had a ball. This was really fun. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, th- definitely. Thank you for coming on the show again. We really appreciate it. And hopefully, if if you'd like to come on this time, maybe you want to come on again sometime in the future. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Yeah. Awesome. This was super. Super fun. All right, guys. So that's our show for the day. Uh, don't forget, you can follow us individually on Twitter. I'm at Mark Vibbert, Vibbert, M-A-R-C-B-I-B-B-E-R-T. And I am at QuestPact, Q-U-E-S-T-P-A-C-T. Or you can follow the show at Animated Podcast. And again, you can feel free to email us at animationfascinationpodcast at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, make sure when you leave, if you're entering the contest for the Paranorman prize pack, make sure that you take a screen cap of your review and email it to that. Because so far, we've only got three of the reviews from, like, the eight or nine that I've seen added new to there. So definitely, if you haven't, go back and do that so you can be entered in the contest to be eligible for that stuff. It's pretty awesome. With, you can also remember just visit our, our website that we remodeled recently in the past few weeks at animationfascination.wordpress.com. Uh, and you can also like us on Facebook just by searching for Animation Fascination. So for myself, I'm Mark Vibbert. Matt Quest and our guest Hal Hickel. Thank you again for listening and make sure to tune in again next time, guys. Thanks. All right, thanks, guys. Awesome, awesome, <laughs> awesome.
I have to ask Matt, and I don't think I'm sure nobody's ever asked you this before, but are you related to Johnny Quest? <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually I do have a cousin, um, Johnny, and he's in <laughs> Florida somewhere. I've never met him, but it's true, I am. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. 